uh, back in um, 2014-ish, around Christmas time, uh, my dad started preaching a whole heap of messages, preached for several months, on the topic of end times, end of the world, what, what's summarised in theological language as eschatology. Eschatos just means last things and ology, you know, the study of the last things. Technically, if, you know, if you're a theologian or you're into theology, there's actually something they call personal eschatology. That's what happens when you die. You know, when you die and it's basically your last or the end of your life, that's called personal eschatology and they talk about heaven and hell and all that stuff. That's interesting. He didn't talk about that. He was talking about the topic that's, that was, you know, it's been such a big part of Christianity in recent years is the end of the world is getting near. And uh, Dad had never preached on that because it was always one of those topics that felt a bit uncertain to him and he didn't completely know what to think and he wasn't, certainly wasn't going to say, tell other people what to think when he himself hadn't got clarity on it. But at the time, 2014, he went and spent $1,000 on Amazon and bought all these academic books that looked at eschatology. And he, he became really clear in his mind about what the end of the world meant. And um, he preached some interesting sermons back then. And I do encourage you to go back to... 2014. Now, you won't find it on our website because our sermons only go back to 2016. But we specifically collated those messages and we put them in a section called Enjoying a Better Eschatology. You'll find 11 or 12 sermons about the so-called end of the world. Um, and that's all on our website and it's on our app as well. You'll enjoy them. And today I'm going to talk a little bit about some of those topics, but not going into all the detail um, like Dad did. And... Um, so the phrase end of the world, of course, is not found anywhere in the Bible. What's found in the Bible is other phrases that make you think end of the world. <laughs> like end of the age is a really common phrase. Jesus spoke it himself. And, and um, even the phrase end of the ages is there. Now that's an interesting phrase, end of the ages. What could that possibly mean? My dad's explained all these things and um, every... Everything related to eschatology is so fascinating, it makes me want to just go talk about that. But I'm going to try to avoid all of that, and if you're curious about all those things, go get our app. Just put Peace Apostolic into the App Store or the Play Store, and you'll find it quick as you please. So one of the things about contemporary Christianity, at least if you're Baptist or if you're Pentecostal, um, or you know, in some of the newer denominations, is that the idea that the world is about to be over is so commonplace. And um, along with that thought that Jesus could be back any minute is this idea that the world's going to get worse and worse and worse. Those two thoughts seem to go hand in hand. And um, my father explained very well from scripture, you know, eight years ago, over many, many weeks, why those things are not correct. And um, the world is not supposed to get worse and worse and worse before Christ comes. It's supposed to get better before Christ comes. The overwhelming message of many, many, many scriptures is that the kingdom of God is going to grow and fill the earth. It's going to conquer the nations. The, the people are going to get saved. There are, there are places in the Bible 
One of my favourite verses is in Hebrews, and it's quoting Jeremiah, I think, and it says that no one will say, know the Lord, or no one will tell their neighbour, do you know the Lord, because everyone will know the Lord. So there's a time that the prophet Jeremiah predicted in the future where everyone's going to know the Lord. One of the Psalms, we've been going through the Psalms in our daily Bible videos, and they're, they're interesting. The Psalms are very, very interesting, especially if you get the context for them. And um, if you haven't been going through the Psalms with me, Psalms is, is the favourite book of the Bible for so many people. You've been missing out. Go, and, go to our YouTube channel, find the Psalms and start going through with me. And in those videos, I often present the context of the Psalm, which means that the background, what was going on for when this Psalm was written, and often things in the Psalm just make a whole lot more sense when you know what was the background to it. And um, one of the Psalms that we've been going through just recently in the last few weeks, it, it said in that Psalm, the praise of every person will be upon their mouth. With the pra your praise will be upon the mouth of every person. So in the mind of the psalmist, there was going to be this moment when every person would not only know the Lord, but would praise the Lord. And I know we do have it in the book of Philippians, which is quoting Isaiah, and it says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Some people think that that's in heaven, you know, that the moment's coming when the judgment comes and everyone realises, oh, he's the Lord, and they confess it. That's true, that's definitely going to happen. But I think to myself, the kingdom of God is supposed to grow and fill the earth and fill human hearts. And I wonder, is that something that's going to happen in, in, on, uh, in earth, in time, on earth? On earth, in time. So that's something I wonder about. But in any case, there's so much scripture that shows us that things are supposed to get better. It doesn't mean that there aren't things that come along in the meanwhile that give us little hiccups. Like, you know, COVID, for example. <laughs> or uh, um, what's the most recent one? The war in Ukraine. And so th when you've got a mind that says the world's supposed to get worse and worse before G and then Jesus is going to come very soon, you, your mind is conditioned to look for bad things and to then believe that's the will of God and, so, and then accept it. So that's the conditioning, sadly, of a lot of people, a lot of Christians that we know. Fortunately, it's not the conditioning of all Christians. And um, your traditional denominations, so this is your Catholic, your Anglican, your Lutheran denominations, some Methodists, these more traditional denominations don't have that kind of dispensational eschatology. They don't think the world is getting worse and worse and worse before Jesus comes. That's just not even occurred to them. I remember at a minister's meeting, we have these Tuesday morning minister's prayers, and a few years ago we were, somehow the subject of end times come up, and we were discussing this idea that, the, that some people have, that the world will get worse and worse, and then all of a sudden Jesus will come back to rescue us from the devil. And um, this Lutheran minister that was there was like, nah, people don't think that. It was like the strangest idea. He had never heard it in his life before, and he, he thought we were all pulling his leg. Well, it's really refreshing to think that there are people like that that don't know that that's a thing. But he hasn't obviously hung around the whole body of Christ because people do think that. And, and that's always been a thing, especially since you know, the late 1800s when that type of thinking kind of started to grow. 
And, um, but anyway, the last few years especially, you know, with COVID, and then of course with the war in Ukraine, um, oh, the amount of, the amount of um, that type of thinking has just blown up. Conjecture and, you know, who's the Antichrist? I saw a very interesting video, it says, Donald Trump is the Antichrist. <laughs> yeah, he's going to become president again and then we'll all see his true colours revealed. Well, I'm not commenting about that. That's just the interesting types of videos that are out there right now. There's videos that say things like, this September, the seven horses of the apocalypse will ride. So I just, they're just ridiculous, but interesting all at the same time. But th this is the type of thing, it's just an explosion of craziness right now because of COVID and because of the war in Ukraine. The saddest thing about it is that because people believe like that, they've got no faith. Now, what I'm trying to say is that they do have faith. They've got faith that the Lord's the Lord. They've got faith in Jesus. They've got faith to be saved. They'll be in heaven with us when, you know, when it's all over. But when they go to pray a prayer, you know, like the war in Ukraine, for example, I've prayed for that war so many times because I feel sorry for the people that are caught up in it. I feel sorry for the people in the Ukraine who are being attacked without you know, any reason. I feel sorry for the people in Russia for lots of different reasons. Some of them who were dragged into the war. I feel sorry for Russian soldiers who've had no choice. They've had to go off and fight. I feel sorry for the people who, who think in the way that they think they would think that that type of a war is justified. I've prayed lots of prayers, but I pray my prayers believing we can have an effect on that. Believing the thing that gives me great encouragement is that I know that when a disaster happens in the world, it very often works out for good. It often works out for the, for, to improve the cause of the gospel. Do you know that Japan was one of the hardest countries in the world to preach the gospel in? So close to the gospel. You can't believe how, how close they were. They saw it as like a white religion. And, um, I mean, originally the gospel had had some initial success in Japan, going back with Francis Xavier, the Catholic missionary. A couple of million people got, became Christians within just a few years. But then the Japanese hierarchy and the, the mayors of Japan and the mayors of the various districts clamped down on Christianity and started killing the Christians. And it became, to the point, there were hardly any Christians in Japan. And then the weirdest thing happened. There was one area of Japan that had Christians. It was the city of Nagasaki. And uh, then an atomic bomb landed on Nagasaki in World War II and Christianity in Japan was done. I still never understood how the Lord allowed that. And, uh, but see, the Lord's bigger than us. The Lord knows what he's doing. The Lord knows what he allows. And if you go to Nagasaki today as a tourist, there's a plaque. And you know the spot that the atomic bomb landed was right on top of the Catholic Cathedral of Nagasaki, literally right on top. There was something going on there in the Lord's mind. But there's, a, there's a, a plaque there in that location where the cathedral is, and it says, it's quoting one of the Psalms, and it says something like, Lord, why? It's all that kind of language of, you know, Lord, we trust you, but why would you do this? And I've always loved that Christians have that heart towards the Lord, like King David did when he was being pursued through the desert all those years, like, Lord, why? And yet, I trust you, like Job. Lord, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. So, you know, in Japan, there's always been this struggle, and even the Christians struggled in Japan. But then in 2011, there was an earthquake, 
and there was a nuclear reactor that blew up and tidal wave came in and the nuclear reactor thing happened and the Fukushima plant caused all those radioactive waves and you know the very next thing that happened? People started getting hungry for the gospel. Isn't that the weirdest thing? I, the ways of God, who can understand them? But do you know what I think happened? I think two things happened. I think one, when there was a disaster, Christians all around the world started praying right then for Japan. And the prayers make a difference. See, we pray prayers and we think nothing much happens. No, the prayers actually create the new circumstance. Like when God spoke and said, let there be light, his word created what was there. And when we start praying, we create the new world the way that it's going to be. So we create the hunger. You know, as Christians all around the world started praying for Japan because of that thing that got their attention, all of a sudden, now there's a hunger for the gospel because Christians are praying. Lord, let those people be saved. We're praying. I know I was praying not just for the nuclear disaster. I was praying for them to be saved, and you can bet millions of Christians were. We created a new Japan in our prayers. And now people who work there as missionaries have said there's a hunger for the gospel like was never there before 2011. Isn't that remarkable? Do you remember that story when those guys, those 11 soccer players went into the cave and got trapped? And then millions of people around the world started praying for them. And then they, those scuba divers went in and got them out. And everyone was saying, that's amazing. That's impossible. You know, how could that have happened? You know, how could they have got those people out without even one of them dying? And then, the, of course, the secular media just say, oh, it's amazing. We've got highly trained staff. And they, you know, they put it down to all their planning. No, millions of people were praying. That's what changes things. And um, so when I see something go on like the war in Ukraine, not just me, but millions of people start praying, and the result is going to be that the gospel's going to have a big effect in that land. So there's still room for God to be God, and God allows sometimes terrible things to happen because God sees big picture, the big picture like we can't see. But if you're dispensational, or if you think the world's getting worse and worse and worse, and lots of Christians are like this, they pray, but when they pray, there's no faith. Because they pray for something like the war in Ukraine and they think, oh, I feel sorry for those people, but this has got to happen because the world has got to get worse and worse. So deep down within their subconscious, they don't expect their prayers to be answered. They don't believe anything's going to come from it because they think the world is supposed to get worse and worse. They think God is making the world get worse and worse. So this whole perspective of the, you know, the earth is doomed um, it's unhelpful to your prayers and unhelpful to your faith. Very, very unhelpful. So you've got to go back to those, all those messages my dad preached to see why that type of thinking is wrong. It's not just that it's unhelpful, because it really is unhelpful. It's important for us to believe that the world is going to improve and get better because we want to pray for things and believe that the power of God will have an effect of course, we're praying for our own city of Rockhampton. We want to believe that the gospel will have an effect. One of the things I pray is that the name, well, the name of Jesus, but Jesus will be greatly loved in Rockhampton, be greatly admired. That's one of my prayers. It's a great, great prayer to pray. You should pray with me and, and believe it. Put your faith in the Lord that that type of prayer is going to get heard. As you pray, Lord, I ask that Rockhampton would be a city of light. 
Light is, a, is the ability for people to see things, to recognise them. Because there's so many people that can't see what's true, don't recognise it. So you pray for them to be, able to, to be able to see it. And pray for Rockhampton to be a place filled with Christians, a place filled with truth, a place where the name of Jesus is greatly loved. Well, we pray for these things and we believe them because we believe that's what's supposed to happen. The gospel is supposed to have that effect. And so you think, um, here, here's an astounding thought. I know I'm getting sidetracked here. But you know, um, there's this once upon a time, this very famous band called the Beatles, all right? And uh, John Lennon, very famous singer in that band, he went to churches when he was a teenager once with his grandma. And he went, it was this Anglican church in England, and he went in there, there were, there were like 40 or 50 old ladies, and they were singing hymns, and there was an organ, and it was boring as, and um, John Lennon looked around the church and saw there was no one else his own age. So he, you know, that was his experience of Christianity. But years later, when the Beatles became famous, he was at some concert somewhere, and there were thousands of girls screaming and all of this, and he said the comment, he said, wow, we're more popular than Jesus. That's what John Lennon said. In his mind, he was more popular than Jesus. When I heard that, I was annoyed. I was very annoyed. Now, I only read some article which was quoting him as having said it, and the article was talking about the demise of Christianity, so-called, how Christianity is going away, in the mind of the person that wrote that article, but it's the biggest load of rubbish ever. So I decided to I'd do a little research. So what I did was I went to Google Trends, and uh, do you guys know what Google Trends is? So it's a, it's a place online where you can track how popular search inquiries are. So if you go to um, Google and type in the Beatles, it'll show you how often people are searching for the Beatles all the time. And it showed this graph over like 10 years, and you know they don't tell you the exact number of searches, they just tell you um, out of 10. So it might be they show you a six out of 10. So they're giving you a kind of a sense of the magnitude of something without putting an exact number on it. And they show you that over time, this six was very gradually coming down over 10 years to a five. And the reason for that is, I guess, you know, for the older people in the church, you know, Beatles were around, or you're more aware of them back then, but younger people today, they've never heard of the Beatles. So less and less people are like looking them up. So I typed in Jesus, see how popular Jesus is. Now Jesus was like a nine out of 10, and um, Jesus goes along, but he's slowly going up over time. And every Easter and Christmas on the graph, there's like a bloop, 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 because you know, Christmas carols, Easter services. So secular society is kind of curious about Jesus, and every Christmas and Easter, they get reminded. And then what you can do with Google Trends is you can compare one search against another, and they still don't tell you the number of queries, but they just put them on the same graph so you can see which one's better than the other. So we put the Beatles and Jesus on the same graph, and here's the Beatles, and here's Jesus, and they're going like this. So yeah, John Lennon, you are not more popular than Jesus. <laughs> Sorry to say. And uh, there's, there's nothing quite like Jesus. And um, it may be that you can go to a, 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 a little church somewhere, and there's just a few old ladies in that church. But in the world today, 33 or 34% of people have said that they're a Christian and that number is increasing as an overall percentage 
over time. No, that's what the kingdom of God is supposed to be doing. It's supposed to be touching the lives and hearts of people. That's what the Bible shows us. But we've got these passages in the Bible which seem to suggest that bad things will happen. And so people have taken that to put it into their own future as the end of the world. As was already explained years ago in those videos, that was talking about the days of the people that Jesus was speaking to because they were going into the destruction of Jerusalem. There was a period of time ahead of them which is called the end of the age, which is the end of Judaism before the new covenant really kicked in. It was that period of time that was really, really difficult. And the reason it was difficult was because the early Christians were Jewish. But the people who, the Jewish people who did not become Christians did not like the Jewish people who did become Christians and they persecuted them. And for a period of about 40 years, their lives were miserable. So that's that period of time called the end of the age when Judaism was coming to an end. And you can read about that in the book of Hebrews that he says these things are obsolete and will soon pass away. Well, that was the temple and the priest service, all those things. That was the old way. You had this period of time when Jesus was crucified by who? Jewish people. But then a lot of Jewish people became Christians. But then the Jewish people that didn't become Christians persecuted those ones. Look at Paul. Have you ever read the, the book of Acts where Paul went everywhere he went? Who was persecuting Paul? Jewish people. We often think, when you think of the early church and you think of persecution, you usually think Roman persecution. You don't see the Roman persecution in the Bible, except for the fact they crucified Christ. But who put Christ before the Romans to be persecuted? The Jewish people. Now, I'm not, this is not a thing against Jews, because Christianity is the Jews. Christ, we wouldn't have Christianity if it wasn't for the Jews, and the early church was 100% Jewish. It's just that there were some Jews that loved Christ and some Jews that didn't love Christ, and that's how that happened. So for 40 years, it was the Jewish people that didn't accept Christ that persecuted the Jewish people that did accept Christ. But also what made it even worse was that in that 40 years, the Jewish people that did accept Christ realized the Gentiles are supposed to be a part of this as well. And that really ticked off the other Jewish people because that's just not in the Bible. Or at least they didn't see it in the Bible, but it turned out it was everywhere in the Old Testament. Going right back to Abraham, you know, you'll be blessed, and through you all nations will be blessed. That word nation is the word Gentiles. All the Gentiles will be blessed through you. It's all the way through. We've been going through the Psalms. I've forgotten now. One of the Psalms is a prayer for the conversion of the Gentiles. It's just there in black and white. I don't know how half of the Jewish people did not just see it there written in plain Hebrew or in, you know, plain Aramaic or in plain Greek, whatever they were reading at the time. So um, anyway, the, all the early persecution of the church was not from the Romans. Go and read your Bibles and have a look. It was from other Jewish people. You know that story where there was about 20 or 40 Jewish people that said, we will not fast until we've gotten a hold of Paul and killed him. Remember that story? They were all Jewish people. No, it's all there. It's, it's later that you get the Romans that are persecuting the church. You know, I think right at the end of that 40-year period when Roman Emperor Nero became in charge, he started throwing Christians to the lions. Uh, well, that was Titus. Titus was throwing Christians to the lions. That was after the Colosseum was built. That wasn't until after Jerusalem was destroyed. And the Jewish persecution ended when Jerusalem was destroyed. And that's why in the book of Revelation, you've got things that say, like, hang on for a short time. 
you know, and once you get that whole thing correct, it's amazing how the book of Revelation really just lives for you. And that's not our subject today. What I wanted to answer the question today, and I'm now running out of time, is um, I wanted to answer the question is how do you be ready for the Lord's return? Now, if you think Jesus is coming back any minute and uh, the world could be over tonight, then you think that being ready means making sure you're saved. That's what you think being ready means, and that's what everyone thinks. You know, Make sure you're ready, make sure you're saved. Jesus actually talked about this in Matthew 24, and he said, if someone knew a time that a thief was going to break into their house, they'd be ready, right? If I knew a thief was going to break into my house, I'd call the police in advance. I wouldn't be waiting there with a baseball bat. That, to me, just sounds like a recipe for disaster. Not that people shouldn't have baseball bats or anything ready just in case. I know people that have that type of thing. And um, in America, it's very common to have a handgun next to your bed. Also a potential recipe for disasters, I think. Um, handguns everywhere in America. I'm not, not saying whether that's good or bad, it's just a thing. We went to church, I'm getting sidetracked here again, but we went to church in Idaho in a little cute little town called Clark Fork in the snow, a little Lutheran congregation. I got to preach, about 20 or 30 people, a lovely congregation. Pastor Nicholas, if you're listening to me, God bless you. And um, we were there, I preached, and then we went to lunch with Pastor Nicholas and his wife. And he told me over lunch, he said, today you were in the safest place in America. I said, huh? What's he saying? He says, every member of my church had a handgun with them today. <laughs> my first thought was, safest or most dangerous? <laughs> so, <laughs> so if I say something wrong, are they going to shoot me? So, uh, no, but in theory, in theory, any terrorist could walk in the door of that church and would be instantly shot by 30 people, including the little old ladies. <laughs> I'm not saying that's good or bad. That's just... The, there's so many different types of Christians in the world and it's so interesting how God just loves all different types of people and um, in, in fact up there in Idaho I just love those folks it's a wonderful part of the world North America out there in the snow in the woods with the pine trees terrific place not a terrorist for thousands of miles but they've got their guns just in case and um, we should all go visit Clark Fork sometime anyway um, being ready so, you know, they're ready over there in Clark Fork for the terrorists. You know, if a robber was going to break into a house, you'd be ready. Jesus used that illustration to say, you don't know the time or the hour that I'm going to come, so be ready. And people think being ready means just be saved. But my question, my question I'm asking and the answer I'm going to now more quickly give than I was going to give before is how do you be ready? It's not, it's not just waiting for him to come that's being ready. Because a lot of people think, just be saved and just wait, that's being ready. It's not. I'm going to read to you some scriptures. Matthew 24, verse 36 to 44. Jesus says, about that day or hour, no one knows. So when Jesus comes, he's coming at a time that no one knows. Any videos on YouTube that proclaim that the apocalyptic horses are going to ride in September or anything like that. No, they're not. The fact that anyone's labelled a date on it automatically means that cannot be it because no one knows. So he says, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, only the Father. Now, 
Jesus, when he says not only the son, he meant at the time he was giving that information, he did not know. But now he's with the Lord in heaven, he knows now, he just didn't know at the time he was saying it. He says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the son of man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, up until the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the son of man. Do you notice what he, Jesus described what the world will be like when he does come, whenever that is? He said it'll be normal life. People will be eating and drinking, getting married, going to work, having children. Life is normal. He said they will know nothing. He said it will happen, at, if we go down a bit further, he said verse 43... Uh, where are we? Verse 44, he says, You must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This is the thing that everyone doesn't see. Everyone has interpreted this so specifically that they think that it'll be at like an hour when he's not expected. Like, oh, I've, he might be coming tonight, but... Surprise, he came at 3 p.m. It was the wrong hour. We didn't guess 3 p.m., so we're all surprised. Now, Jesus is saying, you will know nothing about this. It will be at a time when you do not expect him. It's not about the hour. It's not about the day. It's at a time. It's a period of time in world history when Jesus is just not expected. Right now, I can't think of any time in history when he's more expected the amount of videos and discussion about Jesus coming back now, he is so expected, it's just not what this passage is describing. Now, when Jesus comes, it's going to be an actual surprise. Isn't that what he's saying? He said he's going to come at a time when people will be surprised. And he uses Noah as the illustration. And the people that were caught in the flood were actually surprised. It wasn't like, I wonder if the flood's going to come today, or is it going to be tomorrow? No, if they were thinking like that, they would have gone and made themselves an ark as well. They were so surprised that they didn't even consider it to be a possibility. That's the way the world will be. And the only way I can understand that is if time goes on for a lot longer and people just give up trying to guess. They get to the point where they say, oh, this is ridiculous. He's never going to come. Well, once people start saying he's never going to come, get ready for a surprise. <laughs> or if it's just old stuff, oh, that's the same old thing, and people just stop thinking about it, get ready for a surprise. Because that's the conditions that Jesus is describing here. And Jesus says, in that type of a situation, be ready. And then, this is the interesting part and this is the, what I was trying to get to in my sermon, and now I'm about to very quickly summarise it. There was, he told a bunch of parables. Now, what people do, what Christians tend to do, is they tend to not realise that these parables were the illustration of the point that he just made. So Jesus gave some, several long sermons in his... That he probably gave hundreds of long sermons, but he gave several long sermons that we have recorded for us. You know, the Sermon on the Mount is the most famous one, but this sermon here about the end, the, um, you know, this ending of things is called the Olivet Discourse because he spoke this message on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is just outside Jerusalem and from there you can look across and you could, you could in those days see the temple. 
Today you cannot see the temple, of course, it doesn't exist, but you can see the Dome of the Rock, which is the big Muslim building which stands on the spot where the temple is. And you've probably all seen those photos of Jerusalem with the Dome of the Rock in them. That's more or less taken from the Mount of Olives in, in some cases. So, you know, that's where Jesus was at the time, looking across. There was the temple, magnificent building. The disciples, they're all over there with Jesus, and the disciples say, look at this temple, isn't it magnificent? Coated in gold, shining in the sun. And that's why Jesus, when Jesus starts this big sermon called the Olivet Discourse. And you're all used to chapter 24 of Matthew because that's the stuff where he specifically talks about the end of things. But then he goes, it actually doesn't stop at Matthew 24. It keeps on going in Matthew 25 with three parables. These parables are telling you how to be ready for when the Son of Man comes. Okay? Now, if you don't think Jesus is coming for a long, long time, you know, let's say you think the world's going to go on and we're supposed to be about the business of serving the Lord and the gospel's supposed to grow, you might say, well, why would Jesus even say that? You know, what's the point of telling people to be ready if he's not coming tonight? I don't need to be ready. No, that's what the parables are doing. They're teaching you what being ready means. And it turns out that it is for you even if Jesus doesn't come back in your lifetime. After all, he did speak these messages to the disciples 2,000 years ago and he did not come back in their lifetimes, right? And there's been 2,000 years of Christians that have read these things and Jesus hasn't come back in any of their lifetimes. So these parables are for us. They are to teach us about what it means to be ready for the Lord regardless of whether he comes back in your lifetime or not. Plus... He could come back for anyone at any time, any individual at any time anyway. Do you know what I'm saying? No one knows. Um, I bumped into this lady recently. I was shopping somewhere. May have been buying my wife a present or something like that, which is why she doesn't know I was at the shops. And um, talking to this lady, and she was telling me about her husband that just died unexpectedly. And she said the weirdest thing was he was so focused on his health always eating properly and exercising, and he died at like 59 years of age. And it was like a complete shock. Well, you never know when the Lord will return for you. So just because this passage is in the context of when he eventually returns, doesn't mean you're not being called to be ready for the Lord. Everyone is supposed to live ready for the Lord, and this these parables are going to tell you what it means to be ready. So we're now going to go through them fairly quickly. The first parable is Matthew 25 verses 1 to 13. It's the parable of the, the five wise virgins and the five foolish virgins. You've probably heard this parable preached in church many times. It says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven... Now what's at that time? What's at that time? It's at the time that... Jesus does come back whenever that is. It's at a time, which is into the future sometime, when his return is a complete surprise. No one had it even on their minds. They knew nothing about it. It was completely unexpected. It was a shock. Now, not a shock if you're a Christian. It would be kind of like a pleasant surprise, but a complete shock if you're not a Christian because it's just not on your radar at all. And so at that time, that time when that complete surprise happens, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet their bridegroom. 
Five of them were foolish, five of them were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. See how Jesus is telling us right here, it's going to be a while. <laughs> a long time in coming. All these parables have this idea of a long time built into them, and he's illustrating. And they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Do you imagine that life's just going on week after week after week? Let's say life's pretty good, because you imagine if, if the gospel has conquered things, the world's gotten a whole lot better. Let's imagine we're way in the future. You imagine things are pretty cushy. Poverty has been largely done away with. Because you know, the longer that the gospel goes along, the more of an effect it has in the earth. It's taken 2,000 years ago, but 2,000 years ago, it's pretty much done with slavery now. You might think that's a long time, but no, this is, I think there's supposed to be a lot longer to go. And when people in 20,000 years from now look back on us, they're going to say, isn't that amazing how the gospel conquered slavery and we've been living slave-free for 18,000 years? When I was a child, I used to think it was so weird that God would make a world and the world was only going to last 6,000 years and God, Jesus himself wasn't even going to come until the year 4,000 and then he was going to turn up just 2,000 years later. I thought it was so weird that Jesus was going to like, kind of like come as, you know, and die on the cross so late in human history. I just thought that was the weirdest thing. But now I realise the earth's probably going to be around a lot longer than we think and Jesus actually came to die for the sins of humanity at the beginning of history. He came early. He just had to set himself up for it. Put Abraham into history, all the things he did to set himself up and then he came at the fullness of time it says in the scriptures. I think that's incredible. And when we look back on all of these things from the future, you'll see how the gospel eradicated poverty, how it eradicated illiteracy, how it eradicated slavery. and You know, all the wonderful things the gospel's gonna be done and the world will be this wonderful place to live in. But the problem will be, people won't appreciate it as much because they didn't grow up with a horrible life. So you know that's, there are people in the world like billionaires who don't make their children's lives easy because they want them to appreciate the inheritance they're going to get when they eventually get it. So there are billionaires, like Steve Jobs when he was alive, would never give his children iPads. He wanted them to grow up without all that whiz-bang stuff. There are other billionaires, like Warren Buffett, that wouldn't give his children any money. In fact, he didn't even tell them he was rich. Told them all he, was a, he worked in security, which was security analyst, which was shares, but they thought he was like a bodyguard. All this type of stuff because they want their children to appreciate the finer things in life. And so there's a danger in the future that people who will be born into the, into the kingdom of God, born into the body of Christ, born into the world, will grow up in a better world, but not appreciate what God has done. They'll take it for granted, and what will they do? Their lamps will not be full. The lamp, which is their light for Christ, will not be full of the oil of the Holy Spirit, and they won't live for him. Life will just be cushy and easy, and it's a danger actually for you right now. Because your life is quite cushy compared to people who've lived in previous times or in other places. If you, lived in, um, if you live in, say, 
the northern half of Africa right now, especially in the northwestern half of Africa, your life would not be cushy. And so when you get little privileges, you appreciate them a lot. But when you grow up with a privileged life, you don't appreciate it very much because you're used to it. Our whole society is full of people demanding their rights, and yet those people live better than 90% of the rest of the world because they don't think correctly. And the great danger as Christians is having an oil lamp, so-called salvation, and yet not having the light of the Holy Spirit. Not living a light full of God's love, full of his Holy Spirit, full of his power, not living for Christ. If you're not living for Christ, then according to this parable, you're not ready and you're a foolish virgin. So keeping your, your, your faith alive, keeping your heart set on Christ, being in him. That's what that parable tells us. The next parable, parable two, is the parable of the talents. And in that parable, it says in verse 14, again, and Jesus is giving a second illustration, again, it will be like a man going on a journey. He called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. So Jesus has left the earth and he's given us the responsibility of the kingdom. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, so go. We've been given the responsibility of the kingdom. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, to another one bag, and each according to his ability, then he went on a journey. And um, so Jesus is gone. The master is gone. And here we are with our responsibilities. Okay? Now, some people have five. Maybe they're people who are in five-fold ministry. Some people have two. two. Maybe they're people who are, you know, running life groups. or maybe, But some people only have one. They don't have much responsibility in the kingdom of God. But they do have some responsibility in the kingdom of God. They have a bag of gold. And it says, after a long time... There's that thing again. After a long time, verse 19, the master of the servants returned and settled accounts. And, you know, basically the guy with five he was pleased with, the guy with two he was pleased with, but the guy with one didn't do anything with his one. He was a bit worried about, uh, you know, not being able to be successful with it, and he did nothing, buried his talent in the ground, and the master was incredibly disappointed and called him, in verse 26, a wicked and lazy servant, he said, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so when I returned I would have received it back with interest. And then in verse 28 he declares punishment over the wicked servant. According to this parable, being ready for the return of the Lord is doing something with what you've been entrusted. When the master returns he wants to see you doing something. If if you thought being ready was like waiting by the door with a baseball bat, you know, in that analogy of a robber going to break in, that's doing nothing. That's, that's only an analogy about surprise. It's not an analogy about what you're supposed to do. The analogies about what you're supposed to do are in fact these three parables. So Jesus is telling you, giving you an illustration of the surprise, that's the robber breaking in, but now he's giving you three illustrations about how to be ready and they involve being found at work when he returns. The first illustration says being ready means being full of the Holy Spirit when he returns, living for him. The second illustration is about being at work with the responsibilities given you 
actually doing something. The third illustration, which we won't get to today, is the parable of the sheep and the goats, and it all has to do with how you love and treat the people around you in your life. You know, when you do it for the least of these, you've done it for him. According to Jesus, being ready for his return is about being filled with the Holy Spirit, about serving him with the talents that you have, and about being considerate of the people around you. Those are the things that you do to be ready for the Lord. So being ready, it turns out, is not just thinking he's going to come and expecting him and being saved and that's it. According to that second parable, if you're not found serving him when he returns, then you're not ready. And I'm going to prove all of this and bring this message to a close by going back to Matthew 24 and reading the last few verses right there. Verse 42 to 44 of Matthew 24. Jesus says, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come, but understand this. Oh, hang on. No, that's not it. Wrong, Wrong section of verses. Where are we? Matthew 45 to 51. Too many scriptures going on here. So who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of his servants to give them food at the proper time? So Jesus is talking to his 12 disciples and they're his, they're his servants who are responsible for, I guess, feeding the sheep, you could say. And throughout history, there's been a lot of people who've been responsible for feeding his sheep, pastors and other people. And he says that the master has put these servants in his household to give food at the proper time. He says, it will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Jesus is telling his apostles that he wants to see the ministers at, at work preaching the word of God and equipping people for service. When Jesus returns, he wants to see them or find them doing that. He says, I will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. There's that long time thing again. And he begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect and at an hour he is not aware of and he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this passage is also a warning for ministers. When Jesus returns, it says here, he wants to find them doing what he's asked them to do. So we've got these, all these examples, Jesus being away a long time, and when he returns, he wants to find his people doing what he's called them to do. So we've been talking a lot in the church recently about everyone, we've been talking about the fact that God's calling you. We've been given an apostolic message to proclaim, which I've said is a message of authentic Christianity. It's a me message of relationships. We're called to be a part of prayer. And by the way, that prayer is the one talent. If you don't have any spiritual responsibilities, you do have the one talent of prayer. The least you can do is pray. That's the minimum that you can do as a Christian is give yourself to prayer because that will bring a reward the Lord, if, if the Lord was suddenly to return tonight and surprise us all, I would be shocked if he did, but let's say he did, or if he returned for you tonight, but you were a prayerful person, you'd be ready. 
there would be your one talent and you'd be using it. And the Lord would say, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. But if the Lord returned tonight and you got shocked because you're in the middle of a Netflix episode and your Bible was on the bookshelf covered in dust and you hadn't been to a prayer meeting for three years and you hadn't even thought about going to a prayer meeting for two and a half years, well, that'd be, that'd be an awkward position to be in. And uh, you'd have no other choice right then in that moment except to plead the grace of God. Thank God he's so gracious. He's so kind. And you know, a lot of us have been that guy that was watching Netflix with our Bible on the shelf and all of that. We've been that person. Even pastors backslide. I've, I've said this over the years. Some people don't think pastors backslide, but they have their moments. And, uh, you know, when someone backslides, they stop coming to church for a while, then they come back. Or maybe you're a strong Christian. Maybe you're a, a life group leader. When a person like that backslides, they often stop going to the prayer meeting for a while. Then they, you know, get back. When a pastor backslides, it's when he just loses enthusiasm for a while. You know, we all have, area, we all have the ebb and flow in our spiritual lives. And the pastor, of course, still has to go to church because it's his job and he's getting paid. It's like, ah, oh, I'm just not in the mood. <laughs> well, you know, everyone suffers then because you don't get as good sermons. And, you know, the, the heart of the pastor isn't in it. That's why you should always pray for your leaders to keep them strong. And that's why you should always pray for each other to keep each other strong. So we've all been there. We've all been at that place where we've struggled. But thank God we have a, a God of grace. So this message is actually not a change of subjects compared to what we've been doing all these recent weeks. What I'm encouraging you to do is realise that it's not the pastor's job to do all the work. It's, it's your job to do the work of the ministry. Some have five talents. Some have two. Some have one. You might, you might think, I'm just a one. All right, you may just be a one. You may also be more than you think. But with your one, at least the calling is on you for prayer because that's something that all Christians are called to do. We're all called to pray. And like I said earlier in the message, prayer recreates the world because it's the words of God through us. In the beginning when God said, let there be light, his words created the world. And it was good. How do you think God recreates things now? He still speaks. How does he speak his words in you? You can also decreate the world as well with your words, and that's why you've got to be very careful. So, you know, you might be saying things about, ah, that'll never happen. You've just created a version of the world where that will never happen. So you've got to be careful with your words because it's, you're a person who carries the image of Christ. You carry the Holy Spirit in you. Your words are incredibly powerful. You have to be very, very careful. And I do catch myself saying things, and I have to repent quite regularly because I'm becoming more aware of it. And, um, you know, even just dumb things, like seeing a person, you know, do something silly on, you know, every now and then you might see a video and something stupid happens, and you say, ah, that bloke, he's hopeless. And then I realise, oh, I cannot say that about people. And then that prompts me to pray a genuine prayer of power. Lord, forgive me for those words. I cut off those words. He's not hopeless. And now, Lord, touch that man. Take a hold of him. Empower him. Let hope fill his heart. Those people often end up way more blessed because I've said a dumb thing, because I realise it and I fix it up and make it even better. So you've got to remember that you carry 
the word of Christ. When you say something, it's like God said it. And that's why, especially, you have to be careful about what you say about each other. But the book of Hebrews says, to stop grumbling and complaining and slandering, he says, you're biting and devouring one another. Well, that's because your words, if you say something negative about a fellow believer or another church, you just made it really hard for those people. You've got to stop it. We, we all do it, so it's not like, you know, I'm perfect and we all, I'm telling you off. No, we all, have to, we all have to get on top of that. But anyway, we're, I guess I've gone all over the place with this message. Said millions of things I wasn't thinking I was going to say. Didn't spend enough time on the thing I was going to say. But we come to the end of this message with the main point is, you have a talent. You may have one or two or five. You're called to use your talent for Christ. At the minimum, you're called to be a prayerful person. You're called to be a Christian, a person who carries Christ throughout your life. Wherever you go, you are like Christ in the world that you live. You're like Christ in your home. God help us with that. You're like Christ in your workplace. God help us with that. You're like Christ in your neighbourhood when you yell at the dog and your neighbours look over the fence and see. God help you. God help us with that. You're like, you're like Christ when you're at the dump and you're emptying a load. You're like Christ when you go into the city council and you complain that the rates have just gone up to the person who works right there. You're like Christ when you get angry because the light stayed red too long and then it opened and only let one car through and went red again. That's that traffic light down near the school, by the way. It's horrible. And... Um, be careful of that one. Someone should talk to the council about that life. So, it's the one on, you know, Glenmore Road where it joins onto the old bridge. It's so bad. Three cars. That's why everyone keeps shortcutting through dominoes. Um, you are Christ wherever you go. And if you're at work and you're surrounded by unbelievers, then you're Christ to them. God help you. That's why I don't put Christian bumper stickers on my car. Because <laughs> my witness in a bad moment, in a bad moment, I do more harm to the gospel than the good that those stickers might do, uh, you know, all the rest of the time. And I don't want to let the Lord down because I know I'm just a human and I make my mistakes. So may Christ be at work in us and may we be ready for the Lord whenever he comes. You know, even if, as we suspect, it might not be for a long time, but, you know, that's the whole thing about surprises. They are surprises. So let us pray, but, and I encourage you, to go home and ask the Lord, what does it mean for me to be ready? What does it mean for me to be ready? It, it's got something to do with action, not something to do with... Waiting. A lot of people think it just means waiting around doing nothing. No, no, no. It means you, you're supposed to be found doing something. That's what it means to be ready. Lord, we're so grateful for the word of God. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the parables. Lord, we love your teaching. We love your parables. And I thank you, Lord, that our minds and hearts are enlarged with the word of God. And today I ask that each and every one of us would be able to answer the question, of what it means for us to be ready. 
Lord, help us to answer the question, you know, what is the talent that, that you've given to us and how can we use it for you? And so, Lord, give us grace to be Christ in the life that we have, that we, that we live. And, Lord, my prayer this morning would be to bless the people of God. Lord, bless everyone here this morning. Bless those who join us online. I pray your power would be at work in their life. And I pray you'd use my words this morning, even the random bits that, that weren't all very consecutive and didn't flow well. But, Lord, I pray you'd use them all for your glory. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would find as a church that we are blessed, blessed in every way, but at the same time we don't take your blessings for granted, but we, we use your blessings for the sake of others, just like you said to Abraham. So I declare grace upon the house today, peace upon the people of God, mercy to every struggling heart, Lord, victory over every, Lord, temptation that seems so empowering it's almost impossible. And yet, Lord, we declare power in the name of Jesus Christ. I speak truth into every mind today in Jesus' name. A fresh filling of the Holy Spirit for every person. A filling of the Spirit for the congregation as a whole. A fresh outpouring of understanding and wisdom and revelation. I speak a passion in prayer over the congregation the burden of the Lord upon every heart, the joy of the Lord into every heart. Lord, eyes that see for every believer. Lord, and grace to carry us along in Jesus' name. Amen.